Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Rabia Iqbariye, a human rights attorney, a doctoral candidate at Harvard Law School, and a non-resident fellow at FMEP. It is July 2023, and I'm delighted to be here on Occupied Thoughts with Abed Abu Shahade. Abed is a political community organizer from Jaffa, who is also an elected city council member in Tel Aviv, Jaffa's municipality. Abed has a master's degree in political science, and he researched the social and cultural segregation of the Palestinian community. He also hosts the Al Midan podcast with Arab 48 news outlet and gives political tours of Jaffa. Welcome, Abed. Hello, Rabia. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Today, we are continuing in our journey in this podcast to highlight different localities and local experiences of Palestinians. I hope that through this journey between the different localities, we will develop a better understanding of the nuances, the differences, and yet the overarching experiences shared by Palestinians, whether living in the West Bank, Jerusalem, Gaza, or Israel's 48 territories. Abed, in previous episodes I hosted in this podcast, we spoke about Jerusalem and Nazareth. We focused on the challenges that each community faces. For example, in Jerusalem, we spoke a lot about uh, the dispossession and settler organizations who take over Palestinian homes in the city. In the previous episode about uh, Nazareth, I spoke with Maria Zre about the general political and social landscape of the city, the increasing crime, the opportunities for youth in the city, and the overpopulation and lack of infrastructures. But we also spoke about the independent initiatives that are led in the city, like Baladna's Youth Center and, and others. So let me start by asking you, what is Jaffa today? How does it look like? And who is the Jaffan community that lives here? First of all, Rabia, once again, thank you for having me. Um, I think it's an interesting question. What is Jaffa today? And who are the Jaffan community? And I assume when you say Jaffan community, you're talking about the Palestinians. Right. Um, Which is a great start, you know. Yes. We can unpack that. <laughs> My biased uh, assumptions. It's, it's sometimes good to be biased. Um, no, and, and I think it's an ev- even today in the Palestinian uh, community in Yaffa, the assumption if, is that you need to be Palestinian to be from Yaffa. Mm. Now, unfortunately, Yaffa was annexed to Tel Aviv in the early 50s, and it's Tel Aviv Jaffa municipality. Uh, we don't have our own municipality. And then the question of the Palestinian community in Yaffa is interesting because, and first of all, People don't tend to realize this. Also, people who travel here, that when you travel to and go to the uh, Israeli Jewish cities, it's very common not to have Arabs and Palestinians in them. Right. So if you go to New York or if you go to San Francisco or Paris or Munich, you're going to find either an Arab or a Muslim community. Right. But you f- won't find any Arab community or Palestinian community in, in, the, in our area. You won't find a Palestinian community in Tel Aviv, nor in Batyam, nor in Khulon, nor in Rishon Lezion. And we are the only Palestinian community in this area. Met- yeah, in the metropolitan Tel Aviv area, basically. Yes. The closest thing to us is Ramlilid, which is also two historical Palestinian cities. It's 17, 18 kilometers away from us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes a very a unique, uh, a unique community in the sense, in the broader sense of living in the sea of uh, Israeli Jews. 
uh, and I think what's unique is in this city is having Palestinian in it. Mm. Now, to be biased and to be very honest, it's probably the most beautiful city in the world. Um, I <laughs> I agree. I agree. I lived in Yapa for no. for a couple of years. Rabia, if you wouldn't agree, I would stop the interview. <laughs> uh, it's it's really beautiful. Um, extremely highly gentrified. Um, I assume we're going to talk about housing right. crisis in our community. Absolutely. Um, but it is the oldest city also in this neighborhood. Uh, Tel Aviv is considered new. It's like only 100 years old. We're talking mm-hmm. about a very rich community, a very rich city. Uh, also the landscape, it looks different from our neighbors, uh, neighboring cities. Um, and I would say it's it has in it the all all the conflict summarized in this community and I didn't mention the number it's only 20,000 Palestinians so these 20,000 Palestinians mm-hmm. every political uh, differences between Palestinians and Israelis you're going to find in this community so it's extremely diverse in this sense uh, both religiously politically and culturally i assume um, but it's also 20,000 Palestinians you know I, wh- I remember the first time i heard the the Jaffan Palestinian Jaffan community is only twenty thousand Palestinians. I was surprised, you know, because I thought for some reason it was much bigger. Um, and these twenty thousand Palestinians live really in, in a metropolitan area that has over a million Jewish Israelis. How do you even survive in this context, you know, and and preserve your your distinctive identity, your language, um, when when you're absorbed in a hyper-Israeli surrounding? So, f- first of all, you were very close concerning the numbers. There are 2 million Israeli Jews living in, the, in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, if I isolate only Tel Aviv, Jaffa, so there's about 450,000 residents, only 20,000 Palestinians who happen to be on, to live in uh, Jaffa. Um, and the question you just asked right now, this was my academic question. This mm. is what... I found extremely interesting. 75 years after the Palestinian Nakba, it's important to also to go through the numbers. I mean, when you talk about uh, the history of the city, up until 1948, up until the Nakba, uh, April, May of, of 1948, there was about 120,000 Palestinians living there. So in the in Yaffa, the city, 80,000, and another 40,000 in the villages surrounding Yaffa, Sheikh Mwannes, Jiraish, Tal Rish. And out of them, only four to three thousand Palestinians remain. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a that's a similar process that basically happened in major cities in Palestine, right? Yes, I mean very very similar. Haifa, Haifa, Lid, Ramle, very very similar, very similar in numbers. Uh, and I think it's, it's an ethnic cleansing. You can't understand it in mm-hmm. any other way, mm-hmm. especially Yaffa, because when you talk about the Zionist project, the Zionist project is Tel Aviv. Right, it was built as an antithesis to Jaffa, Jaffa that represented multiculturalism and multi-religious uh, city, and then you had an only Jewish uh, city. Mm. So my my question was, there's only twenty thousand Palestinians, and surrounding us there is two million Israeli Jews. How come we didn't integrate throughout the years? Mm-hmm. And I find it very interesting that not only didn't we integrate, like the people who really know the politics in Yaffa, um, we don't have any Arabs part of Zionist parties, the Labour, Likud, and so on. And if you might find individuals, you, you like there's a big question mark concerning them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're n- 
usually they're not very uh, vocal. Vo- n- not only not vocal, but they're not very popular inside the uh, the community. Um, on the other hand, you'll find representative all of the Palestinian national uh, parties, the communists, the national, uh, the Muslim parties, and they're very strong and they're they're very vocal. And it's interesting that you said that people who visit us tend to think there's a, um, an Arab majority. Even we, even the Palestinians, we think we are the majority. In Jaffa. In Jaffa. Right. Even though if you go through the numbers, it's easy to see that you're not the, the majority. So what is roughly the numbers really today? Uh, I mean, 20,000 Palestinians in Jaffa. Put aside for a second Tel Aviv, the, you know, the greater area. In Jaffa today, and we will delve into gentrification in a bit and the increase probably, or the change of the social fabric of Jaffa, um, but in terms of how many Jewish Israelis today are living in Jaffa? 40,000. 40,000. So basically double yes. the, the, the Palestinian community. Yes. Uh, and I thought it's really interesting. And, and today we don't have an only Palestinian neighborhood in Jaffa. So Ajami neighborhood is very famous. There's a very good movie on Netflix. Watch it. It's very uh, super recommended. Uh, but even Ajami is not an only Palestinian uh, neighborhood. It has a majority of Palestinians, but there's Israeli Jews on all, and every other street in uh, Ajami. Um, and the rest of the neighborhoods as well, the majority of them, they're mixed. So you might find Palestinians and Israelis. And it's, it's an interesting question. Why didn't we integrate? So my claim is that we see two different realities in Yafa. And these two different realities, it builds the... Social and cultural segregation. And when I say social and cultural, I don't say political segregation. Because political leaders uh, in Palestine, in gen- inside the Green Line, nobody really talks about segregation. In Yafa, it's interesting that nobody is advocating for segregation, but people are super segregated. Mm-hmm. We have our own businesses, our own coffee shops. Uh, there is places that you know it's like Palestinians buy from here and the Israelis buy from here. Um, I bring all as an example, two coffee shops in the same street, like 200 meters away. And one is predominantly Palestinian, the other is uh, predominantly Israeli Jews, even though both owners, they're very non-political. So my claim is that we see two two different realities, and it it builds a cultural dynamics separate without people advocating for it. Um, and, And I think it's, like, at the end of the day, we are affected by the political s- structure that exists and we live in. And the most important thing is we're not stupid. Mm-hmm. We know when we are not welcomed. We know that at the end of the day, the Palestinian community needs, like, even if we're not vocal about it, but we know we, I, we need our space. And we build the space without sometimes the political theories behind it, but it happens, like, naturally. naturally. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's super interesting. I I can't resist but to ask you a follow-up question about this segregation theme because I do think sometimes about it, especially after moving to the United States. You know, the whole discourse there about segregation is very much tied to the American apartheid that persisted there against the black and African community um, earlier. And, and, you know, it's ongoing in many different fa- ways and it transformed. But also... I visited South Africa um, last year, and also there the the discourse about segregation assumes that the community wants desegregation, right? Because it's imposed segregation by whites, 
um, and and the political struggle was against the segregation. Now in Palestine, I feel, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm thinking out loud. I feel that sometimes this is also a way to protect ourselves is to not engage with with the Israeli community around us. You know, the engagement is many times exploitative. It's many times um, this these integration uh, calls, let's say will mean wiping out, for example, in Jaffa, uh, if integration had happened, um, you know, this would have meant probably wiping out the language, wiping out the identity of Palestinians in the city. And to what extent do you, do you agree? I mean, I'm, I'm really open to hear more, but I, I sometimes wonder about this. I think it also has to do, uh, first of all, I agree, but we have to understand the history of how things were built up. The... The Palestinian community in Yaffa or the Palestinians who uh, happen to remain in the in their homes or in their cities after 1948, the Palestinian Nakba, they have a total different experience with the Israeli Jews than the majority of the Palestinians inside the Green Line. And the reason for that, and I'm sorry, but we have to go through, to understand the Palestinian community, we have to understand what happened in the Nakba to the, how the Palestinian city went through the Nakba. So usually the Palestinian narrative focuses on we lost the war, we lost the homeland, and the refugees, right? Uh, which is true. But we don't ask what happened to the cities and what happened to the Palestinians who remain. So to understand that, we have to acknowledge that there's three stages to the Palestinian Nakba in the cities. So the first part is we lost the war, the majority of the Palestinians turned into refugees. But then comes the second part. The Palestinians who remained... We were all put in ghetto called ghetto ajami. There is no uh, equivalent word in Arabic to ghetto, so we just use also mm-hmm. ghetto ajami. In Ramle, by the way, there is still a neighborhood called the ghetto, and mm. people are not aware of how, uh, like the, the, the political context of this word. Um, we were forced into the ghetto, but then two very important bills passed in the Israeli Knesset concerning the property of the Palestinian refugees and then concerning to people who weren't in their property after the war or six months after the war. Mm-hmm. So we were put in ghetto Ajami, martial law. Uh, you had barbed wire surrounding the ghetto. You can't leave the ghetto without permits. And if your property is outside of the ghetto, so if you're not from Ajami neighborhood um, before 1948, for example, my family is from Tel Rish, we were forced in ghetto Ajami. The bill, the absentee law bill, says if you're not in your house during the war, everything could be confiscated. Right. We lost everything. And this is very unique to the people who remained in the city. We didn't have any house. We didn't have any land. So people who went through the Nakba in Imm al-Fahim, for example, you still had your house. You might mm-hmm. have lost out of land, but you still had your house and some probably some land surrounding your house. We had absolutely nothing. Not only that, they put us in houses that are owned by the state. Mm-hmm. The second part is which are your refugee houses themselves, I- exactly. Right? I mean, yes. they're owned by the state because their owners became refugees, and these houses became under the custodian of refugee property, according to this law. So, I, I just want to, you know, we, we I think we talked about it in previous episodes of this um, uh, podcast um, about these laws that transfer all these property, Palestinian property, to state hands, and then. Uh, the whole concept of present absentees, basically. Yes. Which is your family, for example, including yes. mine. My grandmother 
who also lost her property in Haifa and Safad and, and all those who were also internally displaced. We talked about Safouria uh, in Nazareth and the community from Safouria in Nazareth. So, okay, so, so they, they house you in Yafa, the community that remains, about, what, two, three thousand people in Ajamin, in the ghetto. And they put these communities in houses that are themselves for refugees who left. So nobody owns really their houses. It, well, the state, uh, and this is the second, like to summarize the second part of the Nakba, is the biggest armed robbery of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And think of it. It's a place like Yaffa that housed uh, 120,000 Palestinians, their theaters, their banks, their property, their private apartments, their shops, everything was stolen. T- there's so much to steal, it took them six months just to clean it out. But then it get worse. Eventually, uh, they had this program called the Melting Pot Program. Is to bring uh, the Israeli uh, immigrants, the Jewish immigrants that came to Palestine after 1948, and bring them to live in the same house together, right? Mm-hmm. So 95% of the cases, like different Israeli, different Israeli Jews from different uh, nationalities, had to live in the same house together. The ghetto Ajami didn't survive long. By the 50s, it was open because Yaffa was part now of it was annexed into Tel Aviv, so martial law allowed you to work in Tel Aviv, but you can't leave Tel Aviv, something like that. Um, and there were a lot of properties empty, apartments mm-hmm. empty in Yaffa, not all of them. So then they started with this melting pot project also in Ghetto Ajami. Mm-hmm. So my mother, for example, grew up in a house with another Jewish immigra- immig- immigrants from uh, Morocco wow. uh, and another Bulgarian family, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And they all had to share the same house together. Wow. Okay. The biggest problem, Rabi, was with the Arab Jews because they spoke Arabic. Hmm. Now, you have to imagine what happened to the men that they felt they, they lost the war, they couldn't protect the homeland. Everything they owned was stolen, taken away from them, and now they can't even protect their house. And we found a letter from the Arab Palestinian leadership during the 50s complaining to the military over... Uh, violence that was then pointed against them by the Jewish immigrants, especially and they wrote especially the ones from northern African countries like Moroccan mm. Jews, Tunisian Jews, Libyan Jews. Mm-hmm. Right. So our experience with the Israeli Jews is extremely traumatic, and it continues with us through the 50s, 60s, and, uh, and it's so ongoing on. in many ways. So uh, yes, and so the like. We as a community wanting to build our own institution, our own space, it's also a self-defense mechanism that eventually turned into a different epistemology, mm-hmm. like a different way of seeing reality and the question, who are your friends and who are uh, your foes? Yeah, when you're forced maybe to live with your bully, uh, you maybe want to segre- self-segregate yourself <laughs> eventually. That go- takes me back to, to where we started this question. You know, it is it is interesting. You, you use the term Arab Jews, and I just want to elaborate a bit about it for maybe those who don't know. And we sometimes, you know, use it casually because we understand that what Zionism did is um, turn Jewish identity from being, you know, cultural or religious identity into being a political ideology to a certain extent and Zionify it and put it in contradiction or intention with a parallel or becoming a parallel Arab identity. So the whole term Arab Jews today does not even sound conceivable to many 
to many people. You know, they, they sound contradictory. Um, although, in fact, historically, many Jewish people who came to Israel uh, post-1948 to Palestine, you know, they came as Arab Jews. They, they came from Arab countries. They spoke Arabic. And only then uh, the state also, we have to, to mention, the state also discriminated heavily against these population in comparison, for example, to European immigrants who, 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 who came and settled in Palestine. So it's interesting to see how we as Palestinians were forced to live with certain communities in places like Yaffa. Also in Haifa, you know, Wadi Salib comes to mind, uh, where Arab Jews were, were settled there in the early years of the state. Um, Abed, I want to drift a bit and maybe ask you, you know, like, we, we were just, you were just talking about the history of Yaffa, and you give historical political tours um, of the city. It's pretty incredible to witness these dramatic transformations uh, of Jaffa from a major and thriving Palestinian city central to trade, culture, agriculture, production. And maybe you want to expand more about, you know, what Jaffa used to be uh, pre-1948, before the Nakba, uh, to becoming later this impoverished ghetto um, for the Palestinians and de-developed place for decades after 1948, right? And correct me if I'm wrong. And then, boom, somewhere in the 2000s, I believe, um, gentrification hits the city, and now we're at the peak of that, I, I, I assume. Can you talk more about this um, trajectory and the turn to gentrification? I just want to say something about Yafa before 1948. Sure. And I think the best way to describe that is to describe it as a city. And us, Rabia, we grew up, like like only when... Like after finishing uh, your BA or throughout your academic experience, you realize that the big Palestinian villages inside the Green Lake in Milfahim and Nasre, they're just villages on steroids. They're not cities. Right. Like you don't have your individual space. And then you come to like you realize when you want to go have fun, you go to Ramallah. So you imagine you have to go to an occupied city because Ramallah is a city. Now this is a city. You know, Today. it's historically also a village. It, and right, but yeah. it turned into eventually into a city. Right. It functions as a city. Um, and so was Yaffa before 1948. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not only about the material world, right? It's not mm-hmm. only about we had uh, like Jaffa Oranges, one of the f- most famous brands in the right. world. It's not about only the production. It's also what does the city mean? It's the place of being yourself. So what's interesting, if Yaffa before 1948, if you go through the political activism, they were based on... Uh, like the individual experience. You would build your party based on ideology and, and ideas. In the villages, it's focused more about the family. In the city, it was... So we found, for example, in the 1942, was the first NGO registered in Yaffa that advocated uh, animal rights. Hmm, 1942, right? You had feminist activists in the 20s, 30s, and 40s in Yaffa that had an amazing political discourse that it took us years, like decades after 1948, to rebuild. So when you, when I imagine a city, it's not only about the material world, it's also about the human experience of the, the city. You had a train that connected you to Hijaz, that connected you to Damascus and uh, Beirut, and you had shipping that connected you to Alexandria in Egypt. So this is like, what do I mean Yaffa after 1948? After 1948, eventually Yaffa turns into... Like, it's heartbreaking to say it, but the slums of Tel Aviv, especially after it was annexed, 
mm-hmm. and the majority of the neighbors and neighborhoods and houses were demolished and they demo- they were demolished because a political uh, explanation of 194 resolution that said the Palestinian refugees have the right to go back to their house to return yeah and israeli jewish uh, lawyers explained that okay so what if they don't have a house and then at that time in the 50s and early 60s israel really was worried about this question like america had an embargo on israel selling uh, weapons because of the palestinian refugees like it's hard to conceive today mm. and so they said okay we should just demolish the house so if eventually the palestinian refugees came we can't have them coming back here because Again, the Zionist project is uh, Tel Aviv. So the policies was just to destroy as much as possible. So if you have pictures of Yaffa in the, uh, the 80s, 70s, even up to the 90s, it's ruins. It's like a no man's land. We literally had a very big area in Yaffa, in Arabic, called Tamam. Because they demolished so much houses, they just threw it to the sea. So they buried the sea. Mm. Uh, in Najami, uh, it's located in Najami neighborhood, so... In the Ajami movie, there's this part, which I thought they got it correct, it was beautiful, that they wanted to try weapons. So they went to Tamam. At that, when they shot the film, it still was, still was there. And they started using like like train of shooting guns. Mm. Okay, And it was accurate. It's like a no man's land. It's like a couple of acres. Um, which is interesting because it's so close to Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv. This, yes. And it's like the backyard of Tel Aviv. Exactly. Um, but what's important about this, especially this period, it, th- things didn't happen by accident. It was part of the plan of how they saw this place. Of mm-hmm. we need to demolish as much as possible houses, so nobody will enforce on the past, enforce on us the return of the Palestinians, and maybe we'll find some solution down in the Naqab or somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So this continues up until the nineties. Now, well, the thing about j- gentrification people tend to think gentrification is an individual thing it's like some liberal artists decide to move to this neighborhood and this brings to the prices of the houses going up well from my experience it's not accurate the thing about gentrification is a a consequence of the urban plan Mm. and we need to open the urban plans of Yafa. like the first time they thought of building any urban plan like Ajima neighborhood was the only neighborhood that didn't have any Urban, uh, urban plan in our neighborhood, in our area. So they drew a map of how they imagined the neighborhood. Mm. So they weren't very politically correct at that time. They literally thought that western part of Yaffa that overlooks the sea, it's like villas for rich. The northern part as well, housing for the rich. The center, uh, institutions for minority. Eastern part, institution for minority. And the southern, southern part, uh, housing for poor com- is Jewish communities and minorities. Mm. This is pretty much how Ajami looks. They just didn't expect that there would be some rich Arab that might buy houses and where they thought it was going to be a Jewish, uh, Jewish houses. So it's only through this urban plan you see gentrification manifest itself. They finish in the mid-90s, and, and you got it right. Like in the 2000s, you find like the beginning. You can say it's the beginning of uh, gentrification of uh, Yaffa. Now, the gentrification did something very interesting. It first and foremost, the first community that was pushed out are the Jewish poor communities. The Mizrahi, Mizrahi, other Jews, Faradic Jews. Mm-hmm. They were pushed out, but they had alternatives. 
And I think this is like, when you talk about discrimination, alternative is something very important. Mm-hmm. They had Batyan, they had Khulon, they had different neighborhoods, and the majority of them left by their own because things weren't very good, so they just left. The Palestinians didn't have any options, just we just stayed. But the gentrification didn't only uh, affect the housing prices, it also changed the community because we didn't have any alternative. Houses went up like prices by 400, 500%. So we see more and more Palestinians moving into their parents' house. And the birth of new uh, social problems that we didn't have before uh, 15 and 20 years ago in the community. Yeah, so let me, let me maybe try to understand it a bit better in terms of, you know, the institutions behind these trends. Um, we talked about the fact that post-1948, all these uh, houses that people were put in were themselves refugee houses that um, basically the state owned under the uh, or held under the custodian, right? So they were living there not as owners of the Palestinian community that you know entered these houses were not living as owners. So how does gentrification happen here? Who is the, the agents? You know, you personally are an elected city council member whose main constituency is the Jaffan community, uh, and you represent this co- community in the municipality. But I have to mention you're also representing it from the opposition, if I'm understanding correctly, not the coalition. Um, so what is your takeaway from experience, and to what extent the local government is the central part here behind this move, or is it concentrated with the you know, national government, central government, um, when, we're, when talking about gentrification? I think the local municipality is the key player because at the end of the day, it's consequence of the urban plan they pushed. Like how did they imagine the city 20 years ago and 30 years ago? Now, when you open the plan, you understand that they worked by a very specific plan, like no, nothing new happened. They might not have known or expected the outcome that happened, but at the end of the day, this is the outcome of the urban plan. Now, so, something very interesting, like we should talk about the national uh, theme, not only the local theme. Mm. You know, like, it's only he- here, inside the Green Line, Rabia, that there's this term, mixed cities. Right. So-called mixed cities. Yes. <laughs> So-called. Yeah. Um, so if you go to New York, it's obviously extremely diverse, extremely mixed, but nobody would say New York is a mixed city. Because this is how a city is. Like the cities, all cities, all big cities in the w- of the world are mixed. Like this is how they operate. Um, you'll have Chinatown in any, any, uh, every other uh, big city in the state. You'll have an Arab community in every other city in the state. This is the natural way, and historically, this is nothing new. Like going through human nature, you'll find different groups who immigrate from one place to another and build... And I think it's beautiful as uh, for itself. So the natural theme of the city is being multicultural. Mm-hmm. Not here. And not here because the, like, the, like, the assumptions they have while they build a neighborhood or build a city or put forward an urban plan. And I'm going to give you a, an example that we're going to witness in the, uh, the, the example of this outcome in the next uh, couple of decades. So they put forward a new urban plan and something that I obviously opposed of opposed of bu- building new neighborhoods in Yaffa, right? So I had a meeting with the urban planners and I said, okay, like 
how many apartments are you planning to build? There were like approximately 10,000 apartments. So you're going to add another 50,000 residents to Yaffa. I'm like, good. Who are you building for? They're like, Abed, we don't build for any specific sector. We build for everyone. I'm like, okay, fine. Will there be any mosque, any church? Like, no, we can't. It's very specific. Okay, so, but there will be synagogue. Like, obviously, there are going to be a synagogue. Okay, so the schools you're going to build, how many of them are going to be uh, Palestinian Arab schools? Like, no, we built for the general public. I'm like, okay, so how many Israeli Jewish schools? So they're going to give you a number. How many schools for the Orthodox? Or how many schools for the national? So you're going to find a number, mm-hmm. like exact number. So you understand that the assumptions that they have of how to build plan is for Jews, different sectors of the Israeli Jewish community. And even though they won't like, talk about the gentrifying or pushing away the community, the outcome of the urban plan is to push you away. Mm. Mm. That's very, you know, that's very insightful to sometimes delve into the the ways that these, you know, power structure and domination structure um, play out in in the micro level, right? Not only in the macro level when we talk about Palestine uh, as as a um, as a cause, but also to understand the details of how it functions in the day to day life of communities in places like Yaffa, Nazareth, Akka, Imm uh, al-Fahim, and, and, and other places, you know, whether in in 48 in, uh, or West Bank or elsewhere. I just think that this is gives us a microcosm of, of how the Nakba functions, you know, in and the local government level in this case. I think not only on the local level, I think on, on all levels. And... You know, when, pe- when we tend to think of racism or, we, or discrimination, we tend to think of people coming from specific, uh, like, extreme right religious groups. But I think, like, from my experience, the worst kind of racism is the bureaucrats who speak really nice, who come in s- with suits to work, and they will tell you about how amazing this plan might be. But the outcome of this plan is much worse than somebody shouting in the street, death to Palestinians. Because the bureaucrat, through their policies, they're pushing away the Palestinian, but they find that sometimes they might be even liberal, right? Sometimes mm. like they advocate for uh, liberal ideology and demonstrate now the Israeli streets. But the outcome of their wor- work is could be sometimes even worse than the work of the settler who might burn olive trees in the West Bank. Mm. That's interesting, you know, because many... It's an interesting question, maybe perhaps... Um, Given the protests that are now happening in uh, in the Israeli, you know, society about you know liberal Zionists who are protesting the uh, government of the Netanyahu Ben Gvir government, and how how do you see that uh, connected to what we've been talking about? I think it's a natural outcome of the Zionist logic. Like it's a cliche, like uh, through. Uh, I forgot who wrote this sentence, sentence or quote, uh, during uh, Nazi Germany when when they came for the communists, I didn't resist because I'm mm. not a communist. When they came for uh, the minorities, I didn't demonstrate because then. Right. And then it came to me, and I think it's a natural process of the Zionist ideology, and then and the. Natural political discourse here. You know, it's like when you talk about like a fair solution of a state for all its citizens, 
okay, let's talk about equality. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, for all communities, not only the Palestinians, also like for Israeli Jews, you'll be labeled as an extremist. And this is a country that sees itself as a Western liberal democracy. And I, th- I think it's absurd because at the end of the day, um, advocating for a state only for Jews, it, it continues like the, to more specific question, what kind of Jews? Which Jews? Mm. Liberal Jews? Or are, are the Russian Jews really Jews? So when who is, is Jewish? Who and then who is Jewish? And what's the role of the Jewish state? And is it a more Jewish state or a more democratic state? So I think the Israeli community, the Israeli society has come to the conclusion they're obsessed with the idea of it only being Jewish on the account even of some uh, very minor um, space for different groups, even in the Israeli society. And it's going to, like what happened to the Palestinians is trickling down also to the rest of the, the Israeli society. And... And I think it's like the dissonance of the uh, the Israelis who can't see the absurd that they are going to be they they take actual part in the occupation in occupying land and or the pilots right mm. they say that we won't bomb under any dictatorship but you would bomb civilians under my democracy I didn't under, understand yeah, so called democracy I mean this is the oxymoron or the the contradiction really fundamental contradiction of you know, trying to, of this notion or equation of a Jewish and democratic, I mean, mm. democratic for whom, again, and, and how can you combine these two elements without being essentially and fundamentally and necessarily racist um, to non-Jews in this, you know, um, system. Uh, as much as I want to go on, Abed, with this, these line of questions, <laughs> I have to ask you, you know, what other challenges? So we talked about gentrification. I, I don't know exactly the numbers or if you want to expand more about just to, for, for people to grasp the, the increase in, in the prices that has happened over the, let's say, 10, 20 years um, in Yafa to the point where today communities cannot really afford buying their own houses because, again, they were settled in, um, in property that was administered by public housing kind of schemes uh, that themselves the properties were refugee properties as we mentioned uh, and today these families are facing um, one in, in one way or another dispossession right uh, or being forced out of their houses those who can maybe have the means to buy their own houses or to buy a house sure uh, but to what extent this is affecting the community this looming threat of potentially losing a house or not being able to afford a house in the city and potentially leaving and leaving to where okay so the question i'll start with the last uh, question leaving to where we can't afford to leave hmm. like leaving or migrating to a different city it's a privilege because you first of all you need to have the capital to do so and then you have to have the skills to do so as well because you need to find a job mm-hmm. and so if you don't have a uh, a law degree or a PhD in something or a master's, uh, it's very hard, far, hard to find a job in, in a new city. Um, so just to go through the numbers. So first of all, half of the Palestinian community in Yafa is under poverty line. A quarter of the Palestinian community in Yafa lives in severe poverty. So if you don't get help from the so- social services, kids will go to sleep uh, hungry. Mm. Um out of the 20,000, about approximately 5,000 live in houses that are still owned by 
uh, the state. There is the company who runs it called Zamidar, right? Halamish or Amidar, and these are refugee houses. So, but not all of them are necessarily poor. It's just you're not allowed even to buy this property even right. if you had them. So I have two uncles, like one from my mother's side, one from my father's side. They are like the second generation who live in this house. Now and they're considered pro- so-called protected tenants? Yeah, they are. Their kids are not. Right, because Be- it's two generations. Because it's only. for only two generations. And my uncles, they're not young. They're in their 50s. So there's question what's going to happen in 15 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. But other than that, um, this also brings to bring us to talk about uh, a qu- how do you, like, what what is wealth? So if your father, if your grandfather owns a house, it's going to be easier for your father to buy a house because he can always take a mortgage on your grandfather's house, and your or your grandfather finished paying his mortgage so he can help his son or his daughter to buy a house. So the whole gen- first generation of the Palestinians who live in Yaffa didn't have any property. Mm. Like this is extremely unique to the Palestinian cities. So the second generation had a hard time buying a buying a house. Mm-hmm. Now up until they start, we started buying houses. So it's it starts in the seventies and eighties. First of all, there is this barrier that Israelis Jews don't sell houses to the Palestinians, right? So there's a, this like racism inside the Israeli community. Um, but we do start. It, the houses up until this 2000 prices were very reasonable so you could buy an apartment a reasonable apartment in Yaffa for $100,000 American dollars mm. right which is reasonable you need to save 100 Israeli shekels and then you get a mortgage for 300,000 and you pay a reasonable mortgage as well today to buy like the most basic apartment something very old built in the 60s or 70s no uh, no elevator, no, mark, no parking lot, no nothing. It starts with, uh, I'll say it in Israeli shekels, and then we might translate it to, it starts with 2.2, 2.3 million Israeli shekels. And this is like 60-meter apartment. Right, right. so right. just below about a million dollars, basically. Yes. A bit below, maybe $800,000, $900,000 for li- the most basic apartment. I, if you want to live in somewhere and live reasonable, it's an uh, one million American dollars. I'm not talking and about more. something fancy. Yeah, I'm just like I'm talking something that reasonable to live in, like eighty meter apartment. So, because of the housing pro- uh, problems and crisis, we started having a new problems that it, we didn't have before. And I think when you talk about gentrification, we should leave the material world as aside. It's important, but we're gonna we need to ask what happened to the community. Mm-hmm. So one of the most alarming. A uh, statistic that uh, I'm following up in the past recent years is divorce rate in the Palestinian community. Today in Yaffa, it stands about 54%. Divorce rate. Divorce rate. Mm. I have public schools that have approximately, like two public schools, approximately half the kids come from a single parent household. And the reason for that, the number one case for divorce is economical reasons. They don't agree, and they don't, and which builds up, and eventually, uh, they get divorced. One of those solutions was it worked for a while, and then people started to understand it can't happen. As people started going back to their parents' house, a lot of the time they're not even allowed to live in their parents' house because their parents don't own the apartment. So. It's another uh, bureaucratic... In these public houses. In these public yeah. houses. 
So we're seeing because of gentrification, because of the housing problem, and more and more, so more and more social problems that we didn't have before. Um, the number of kids of young men that don't show up to school, it's it's approxi approximately 16%. The municipality like hates it when I bring up this uh, this number. Uh, so just imagine, Rabia, every year we have approximately between 200 to 300 young men between the age of 14 to 17 that don't show up to school, they don't know Arabic, they don't know Hebrew, they don't know like basic life skills, and they'll be in the streets. And I think it's heartbreaking because you ask these questions what like best case scenario what's the future for these kids i will sum up by saying as like people like someone who is like very engaged with the community i'm extremely worried about their family structure and i am extremely worried of the absence of a prominent a father figure in the family and how it might affect the community in the, the future but i do frame it in as po like because of the political status and because of gentrification that we're having these problems today. Yeah, that's that's very... I mean, thank you for sharing this. This is very insightful to understand the ramifications of gentrification and not only in terms of the housing crisis, but also what social implications they have. What other challenges besides gentrification, or maybe I'm sure that they are all connected eventually, right? But what other challenges does the, the, the community face today? Maybe if we can highlight one or two more things that are central to, to Jaffa today. Um, I know many times Jaffa, at least in the past, was very much associated with crime. Um, is this still very central to the city? Uh, how do you understand it? And what else? Okay, so as you mentioned, uh, crime. But I think... Like to talk about crime, we have to talk about the traumas, especially what the men went through in our community after 1948. Uh, as I mentioned, like the three stages of the Nekbe, after the third stage, there is an interesting phenomenon, a very like sad phenomenon of men who fell into depression and with lack of proper treatment, they found themselves using drugs and alcohol. So it started with opioids. And then in the 70s, 80s, crack cocaine, heroin entered the community. But it's like, it's due to traumas. Um, and then it builds up to the 90s. And ever since the 90s, we have about four homicides each year. And I keep when I say this number, I keep like emphasizing that we underestimate what we as men go through in our community. Like, I'm 35 years old. I have five friends who were shot to death. One of them, I happened to be at the place where he was shot, and I had to take him to the hospital. Like, you don't... Like, it affects you. It affects you on a deep level. And the traumas that we as a community go through, it's, like, astonishing. I have... Like, there's this kid who I was friends with his brother throughout, like, any, since kindergarten until the primary and secondary school. And... His brother was shot to death about 12 years ago, a mm -hmm. close friend. Now, he grew up, and his friend was sh shot to death a couple of months ago. So I, I follow him on Instagram. And I'm thinking to myself, like, he, he lost his brother, and also as a young man, he has a friend who passed away. Like, it affects you. He was killed. He, was, he yeah. was killed. And imagine it's like four per year since the 90s. We're talking about approximately since 1991. It's like the exact date where it a big gang war starts till this day. We're talking about approximately 100 to 140 young men who were shot to death. 
in a such a small community. It's exactly. And how did it affect the women in the community, the kids, the brothers, the mothers? It's it's heartbreaking. Uh, so when I th- when I talk when I th- when I talk about crime, it's not only about crime and, and statistic. It's also as a community how it affects us. The other problem, and I think like I'll share with you a story. Uh, the other day, me and my friend decided to go to the beach at night to have something to eat and maybe swim. So there's the Yaffa Beach. And there, there's the Batyam Beach. Batyam is like considered to be very right southern. It's, yeah. it's more su- southern, but in the middle there's this beautiful beach. Mm-hmm. So anyone who visits Yaffa, it's like a tip from me. Look at Sea Palace. It's amazing. It's like natural coral surrounding it. It's really nice to swim at night. So we literally questions if we to go there or not because it's bec- at this. It's a, it happened the same time when the Israeli military occupation forces attacked Jenin. So it wasn't very uh, very safe politically. So we started to question, should we go there now or not? Because we don't want to get lynched. Mm. But so we eventually went there and there were settlers on the beach, like mm. passing by. Like settlers, it's like settlers from the West Bank. Mm-hmm. And it came to my mind, like with, with, with all what's happening in the Israeli society, it's just a question of time that the settler project who happens to be in Yafas in 2006... Uh, would lead to a point where they would start to attack the Palestinians in Yaffa. Uh, I think it's only a question of time uh, with the right political uh, help. I Ca- think. Can you just say more about what is the settler project in Yaffa uh, in 2006? So, so after 2005, when the Israeli settlers ha- were forced out of the Gaza, mm. uh, so they came up with this new project of settling in the house, so in the heart, sorry. So the idea was they need to settle in the Arab neighborhoods of the big cities. So you'll have it in uh, Akka, Lid, uh, in Haifa, but it's not as big in Haifa. And it happens to be also an Ajumi neighborhood. So there, right. it's like you're talking about settlers who walk in the streets with M16. Who, who were evacuated from, um, you know, from Gaza in 2005 and they the resettled. The founders. The founders, yeah. The founders, but eventually also settlers from the West Bank as well. And you found themselves... Um, so ever since they started to settle in Hearts, quotation, mm-hmm. uh, they started um, they started attacking the community more and more. But we as a community, we knew how to push back. Mm-hmm. But now when I read what's happening, first of all, they have a lot of money. Like It's really hard to imagine where they get this, so much money. Obviously, it's from the state, and it's funded from the state. Right, and we talked, we mentioned in previous episodes, especially about the settlement project in Jerusalem, you know, U.S. incorporated uh, organizations that are Very exempted similar. from tax and, and, you know, registered in the United States, and they these this, this is a channel, funnel of money that is coming right from there. Exactly, and, and add to it a very extreme ideology, Add to it uh, also political help. Like they've got Bengvir, they've got Smotrich, they got Struk, they got like different representatives. The whole state apparatus. Yes. Yes. And they have also people in the police and so on that provide them with protection and a green light in case they want to, uh, if they attack the Palestinian community. So I think the, the upcoming future, especially in the political structure and the political sh- shifts that are happening right now, I think the Palestinian community is under extreme danger and it's only a matter of time like i see what's happening in the west bank these days it's going to eventually translate to the palestinian community and the big cities here 
Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, um, co-constitutive relationship, what's happening in Israel and the West Bank, right? In the sense that many times there is this idea that what happens in the West Bank is going to eventually come back to Israel, while at the same time, we it marginalizes the whole idea that what happens in the West Bank is originating from Israel to begin with, and it is an mm. extension mm. of Israel. So it's kind of a loop that feeds itself, right? Um Abed, I before wrapping up, maybe as a as a way to wrap up, what is what? So we talked about housing, we talked about crime a bit. Um, we didn't really touch on other issues like education, maybe in the city. So if you want, take the opportunity to talk a little bit about that. I just want us to to end, or maybe just before ending, maybe on a more positive note also about what what palace because jaffa is really a unique and beautiful city uh, that despite all of this people and the community there finds ways to to resist and to live uh, and create meaning and happiness despite all these um, you know barriers uh, and and policies um, so abed as a way of conclusion maybe what are we looking forward to Okay, so I want to say something about education. First of all, I assume we all would agree there is a fundamental problem in the education system everywhere. Like mm-hmm. the way that the age of TikTok, Instagram, and ADHD. Um, but my problem with education is like people will come and talk about the numbers. We have X people graduated and now are doctors and now have PhDs and, uh, and so on. I'm less interested in this because I do... I feel like like the neoliberal system brought us to focus on individuals and not uh, on the community or as a group. And when I talk about education, I'm more interested of how not only do we succeed in academia or in school or whatever, but how do we also any happen to be part of a community, mm. like to be the doctor's community, for example, to be the doctor the the lawyer that the, the community go lawyer. through, yeah, and yeah. so um, obviously the educational system here is extremely uh, centered over the individual and not the community, and they're not doing very well. Like we have the, like, probably the worst statistics uh, nationally, but that need that needs an episode for itself. Mm-hmm. I'm mo- I'm more concerned of how we see ourselves, and you know there's. Th- there was a Marxist debate in the for in the forties concerning who are the people who make revolutions. So the the Marxist assumption was if you oppress people enough, they would eventually vo- revolt. If I'm not mistaken, it was Walter Benjamin who said, "And uh, no, this is this happening at the Frankfurt School." He said, "No, if you oppress people enough, they won't have powers to revolt, but their grandchildren will." Their grandchildren will because they will grow up in the family narrative talking about what happened to them and their oral history and how it affected on the affected them personally. So when I when I talk about education in the broader sense, I think one of the reasons that we managed to pull it through all this uh, 75 years of the ongoing Palestinian Nakba is our pop as it's our power was our power to remember and to talk mm-hmm. and to rebuild our story and which eventually got us to rebuild our community. So maybe in the upcoming years it's going to be difficult, 
But I'm absolutely sure through these stories, through the stories of what we go through as uh, individuals or as being part of something bigger, um, <coughs> we would uh, pull through. And my grandfather would always say, every time I came to complain that things are hard, he's like, I went through the Nakwe, you're just being spoiled. <laughs> you will go through this as well. Beautiful. Habib, uh, thank you so, so, so much for sharing your time and analysis and rich, rich experience. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website for more resources related to our conversation today. And please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And with that, I'm Rabi Akbari signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Mm-hmm.